Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair. Welcome to the Speakeasy Podcast, part of the Pacific War Channel. Here we speak about history, but also silly things like anime, gaming, Godzilla and quite frankly while drinking profusely. Consider checking out the video version at the Pacific War Channel on YouTube, where Craig edits in the dumbest clips you have ever seen. Please check out our YouTube channel for Pacific War content also. Please grab yourself a drink and enjoy. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel, where we usually speak about the Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. You will probably click this, maybe on Podbean or perhaps on YouTube, and you're wondering to yourself, what's going on? This is kind of a pilot project that I thought up with a few of my buddies. And I think we're going to call it the Historian Pub. I'm here with my friend Ian. Hello there. Came dressed for the occasion, as you yeah. can see. <laughs> this is my finest Canadian attire. And uh, for everyone who's, you know, watched my stuff for quite a long time now, usually the podcast discussions are on uh, an event, I'm usually here with Justin. So if it was the Satsuma Rebellion that week, the podcast is almost a regurgitation of the Satsuma Rebellion and maybe some neat facts that didn't make it to the episode. This is not that. This is completely different. I have always wanted to have a normal podcast where we could speak about non-history related stuff like anime, you know, maybe some Gundam Wing stuff. Maybe we want to speak about movies that week or who knows what we're just reading that might not be historical. But we can always touch base on history like we always do. Some Something like a speakeasy. Something like a speakeasy. Are we going to talk about how he I, wanted... Okay, we're going to go into this right away. I thought... A speakeasy was like a, a form of pub where you go, where it's just, it's all about the conversation. You go there, everyone is allowed to speak their mind. No one's higher than the others. So like you would have factory workers and the, the managers and they all go to the same pub, the same speakeasy, and they're on equal terms when they're there. I was proved differently today. Well, he had learned this while reading Marx's uh, ideology, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, a speakeasy. He thought it was, and I thought it was great. We we're gonna call it. We we're gonna call the podcast this. It would be the idea that you know I just have a bunch of random friends of mine from all different walks of life, and you know maybe we'll talk. We're gonna touch on history. It's gonna happen. We're gonna be talking about the Pacific War. So rest assured. But we'll talk about other things. You know, current events. What I don't know what we're doing for work. All sorts of stuff. But we've. Uh, I'm probably gonna call us the Historian Pub because. As you might imagine, most of my friends are fellow historians, history lovers, and we usually get drunk and then argue about, you know, Constantinople mm -hmm. should be returned. I Stuff am, like that. I am not a historian. I have studied history. Uh, I am a working chef, uh, but I still have a passion for history, and usually whenever we're hanging out, we always go back to the same topics of history, and it's always exciting. Yeah, and it's really I'm pro I'm I'm sure people who I hopefully will watch this podcast have the same reality where you know you're out with your friends and you just argue about some really niche dumb historical question. You guys get in an argument over a few drinks, usually at a pub or just walking the streets. I mean we're in COVID right now, so 
this actually came about a few weeks ago. What's we the most walking. successful battleship of World War II? They... Oop, oop. That's actually a tough one. Because, you know, you want to just go, well, the, the Yamato was the best and biggest battleship, but, I the mean... The Musashi and the Yamato definitely were the biggest ships and the only ones with the classification of super battleship, but were they the best of World War II? Because then you want to argue, argue that I would argue, yes, performance, and who had achieved more... I mean, you could say uh, German battleships, like the Tirpitz, being able to threaten the the, the shipping lanes going into uh, yeah. uh, into Russia. Like, that achieved a lot more than, say, the Yamato, which was just always a, a bulwark. It was almost like it was a psychological thing. Because... But that's not what we wanted to talk about today. Just I, that, that, but that's that was an this example. podcast, like, yeah. That's what we're like when... We just get into a conversation randomly. We just and you know the most questions out like that. and the most important thing about battleships is what kind of anime girl should represent them specifically, like the Bismarck versus the Yamato. I, <laughs> it has been done already. There is the game out That's there, Azure <laughs> Lane, and they do have anime girls who are ships, and uh, well, they're not ugly anime girls. Of course not. They're and World of Warships, I'm pretty sure, had an event with it. I think they actually yeah, did. Yeah, World like of a... Warships had an event with Azure Lane, uh, a big crossover thing, so, uh, like commanders coming in, ship camos. Uh... I'm just trying to imagine, like, Isoroku Yamamoto. It's like, would they gender change then just swap him <laughs> and he'd be like a hot anime girl, like 16 to 20 years old, commanding, and Choichi Nagumo would be like kind of the bitchy, like older one that, you know, screws everything up. A little bit more of like the grandpa fellow and <laughs> old school tactics, and then you got like oh the... my god, it's so stupid. I, and you know, I, I don't know how to describe it though. <laughs> and I've totally put you on the spot with this because we we came into this with like a general idea because this is your the first time we're trying this. I said it was gonna get derailed immediately, which I <laughs> hope it did. But, uh, <laughs> all right, we'll get on to the Pacific War stuff, because, you know, he, he wanted to start off, this is episode one of whatever this pilot is, he wanted to start off with, like, the most obvious, like, the unleashing of 1941, Japan's going everywhere and attacking, simultaneously so many locations. I don't know if you wanted to... Well, I mean, it's, it's common history, you have Pearl Harbor, and the rest of what was happening at the time is often like neglected and forgotten about like the japanese did not just attack pearl harbor and call it a day and you know that's how they won the pacific uh there were many moving parts to the japanese empire and their expansion plans and early on in the war and i mean like i mean world war ii in the allied eyes which is 19 well american eyes is 1941 it starts december the 8th pearl harbor attack war war with japan from the allies starts december 7th 1941 like yes they were in china and they had other engagements but the rest of the well the the allied powers officially go to war with japan december 7th yeah we all know like it's um, a sneak attack that they do on Pearl Harbor, and we can go into that, but yeah, that's sure. been done to death. So, to death, yes. Um, what else yeah. were they doing at yeah. the exact same time? Because they weren't just moving on Pearl Harbor. Where else were they going? 
Yeah, so actually by the time they will see this episode or hear this episode on Podbean, um, you probably would have seen I did an episode with another friend of mine, Eric, on the Battle of Hong Kong. It's a great place to start because Hong Kong was simultaneously attacked basically about four hours after the Pearl Harbor attack because the time zones basic, you know, because it's literally like a 12 hour difference. So it was simultaneous, uh, including all the other areas I will mention. But for Hong Kong, oh my God, it was bad. The initial invasion happened, you know, on the mainland, and to summarize it brutally, they made their way from the new territory, which is at the top here, I guess I'm using my hands to show Hong Kong, and then there's the Kunlun area, and then there's the island of Hong Kong, where they got attacked in the middle, there was an east and a west group of Canadians, Indians, and British defenders. If I could throw one thing in there, before any of the, the Japanese movement, let's just take a minute to... Uh, Look at what the Western powers thought of the Japanese oh like armed forces and what they were capable of. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that. They, uh, like, dare I say these are the most ignorant, arrogant... Racist, stupid... I, I actually... Uh, like, I have before, the, uh, before Pearl Harbor, they didn't think they were capable of anything. Look at them. They've been stalled in China for this long. They can't achieve anything. Well, of course... We, like, as for the British, the dominant naval power in the world for hundreds of years, they didn't break a sweat in even hours after Pearl Harbor. They're looking at it like that was a lucky fluke. Pearl Harbor, lucky fluke. You cannot do that. And there was newspapers from probably extreme, like, fringe groups that said, you know what? This surprise attack couldn't have been coordinated by the Japanese. Clearly, German commanders are responsible for the attack because the Japanese could never come up with this. <laughs> Even true. though the, the Japanese Navy was principally trained by the British. You this is why yeah. when, when the Japanese were building up their forces uh, decades earlier, they went to the best of the best. Yeah. And like for learning naval doctrine, they learned from the English. A they little bit from the French, too. They commanded the seas for the longest time, but they learned. Uh, they had their ships built in England and France, both of them. Yep. And then, finally, they started building their own. Little known fact, that was actually the crux of the beginning between China and Japan. Uh, in the first Sino-Japanese War, China just bought a bunch of ships, whereas the Japanese got the ships made in other countries, with a few ships being built in Japan, Yeah, so the Japanese the learned Jap everything. The Japanese also really loved fast ships. They well, wanted they their to. ships to yeah. be fast. It was the Je ne Cole doctrine Where because they had to have faster ships to match. The Chinese had two big German battleships, the Ding Yuan and Jin Yuan, who the Japanese had no battleships, they had no armor. So the only thing that they could do was France had a doctrine against Britain because France was in the same situation. Britain had a big navy, France had a small one. So France had torpedo boats, very fast cruisers with high attack power. Go as fast as you can, try and strafe and attack them, but you'll never, you know, be able to go battleship against battleship. They didn't have the resources. And, and yeah, the Japanese went for it. It just, it doesn't happen. Like, and that for nearly a century, uh, that was the proposed, like, what an ultimate naval engagement would be, it would be decided by battleships, the Mahan Doctrine. And this is the... Yeah, before, uh, before the carriers navy in the in world there. thought of the Mahan Doctrine, which is... The bigger your battleship, the more damage you're going to do the other fleet. And they also had the strategy before people that were very futuristic and saw the like how good aircraft carriers are going to be. There was this old school mentality of big gun battleships. No, yeah, still, 
which is yeah. uh, there's a, a really ironic uh, point of that. Uh, one of the first things that the Japanese did immediately after Pearl Harbor was, and this was, uh, well, the the English had started it. They had sent two of their largest warships, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, with numerous escort vessels and you know standard fleet uh, uh, makeup. And they sent them in uh, December 10th into the Manila area to, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, Manila Bay. Yeah, like near the Phil- yeah, Philippines and all yeah, that. Yeah, uh, off of Malaysia to, uh, the point of the fleet being there was to take pressure off of them and they had no, uh, they basically, they didn't feel threatened at all by the Japanese. Here, here are two big British warships. There's nothing the Japanese can do. Pearl Harbor was fluke, and this is only three days after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Another and thing that people don't know is the British were combined with the Australians, the Dutch, and the Americans with the A, B, uh, I think D, it's, it's and, and bus. I remember like I had that. written it down that, somewhere. Well, that, that comes, uh, that comes later. That's, yeah, I know they initially early, fought by themselves. They, they finally, um, agree on an overall commander for, yeah. uh, the Allied forces, the remnant Allied naval forces in the area. And they, they put it under a, a Dutch admiral. Which was interesting. But the Dutch, I mean, the exile... But at at, this, at this point in the war, nobody's moving their, their troops because it, it it is a shock to them. They yeah. they are in a state of war. And one of the first movements was the British because they've been at war for, for two years now. And they always knew something was going to happen and they had prepared. So the Prince of Wales, the Repulse, they go into the area. It's only the Japanese. Yes, they got lucky at Pearl Harbor. But it was a fluke. Yeah, but they according were to learn. according to them, <laughs> yeah. and and these are the, this is the same nation that had their their massive success at uh, uh, the Bay of Toronto, which the they, Japanese learned from, and that's why that Pearl was the Harbor, inspiration yeah. for Pearl Harbor. Yeah, so like if anyone should know about how efficient uh, aircraft are against, against ships, ships. It, it should have been the British. But yeah, they still they went that. in arrogant to fully loaded battleships. Uh, well, a battleship and a cruiser and their escort vessels. And one of the things from Pearl Harbor that many people said was, yes, but they were battleships uh, in the harbor, not moving, caught off guard. No one was at their station. You know, yeah, because so it was, it was three targets. It was in the but morning. It, they weren't even like... It was in the morning on yeah. Sunday. At, yeah. yeah. And I mean, they're Italian. So. Well, oh, uh, I, I was thinking of uh, Pearl Harbor. Oh, Pearl Harbor. Was, was Sunday. Uh, I'm... Well, a lot of I'm them thought so sure it was a war Toronto. drill for a while. But like mm-hmm. three days after Pearl Harbor, everyone was still saying, okay, they can't uh, reciprocate that. They can't have another success like that. They they caught those battleships in Pearl Harbor off guard. So the British send in their fleet, and they're more than confident. So the Japanese know they're there. They send three waves of a mix of dive bombers and torpedoes. And this is the first example of air power versus fully armed naval vessels. With torpedoes in, in shallow water. Americans thought that they couldn't have torpedoes in that shallow enough water well, to actually be effective. American torpedoes are a disgrace. Yeah. And that, that, that goes yeah. on for like near to the end of the war, like maybe one out of 10 torpedoes. Tragic too. One out of 10 torpedoes that actually hit would actually arm and, yeah. and blow up, whereas was, the, the uh, Japanese were deadly efficient with it. Battle Coral Sea, I think, they got to taste how terrible their torpedoes were. 
and how ineffective and they learned from that that they well, couldn't the rely Coral on Sea it. was another area where well that was the first naval engagement where two forces never saw each other and yeah. you had the two opposing airmen who had the better airmen at the time now there's no argument about it the Japanese airmen they'd been fighting in, the Kido in Butai, China yeah. the, not only the pilots on the Kido Butai but just Japanese pilots in general have been trained extensively. They have more training than any other air force in the world. And this is their, their army groups and their, their naval groups. More training, more hours, more sortie combat missions, not just theoretical missions, but combat yeah. missions. And these are the pilots that... A lot of training in China, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> these land-based aircraft that went up against uh, the British, uh, as they called it, uh, British Force Z. Yeah. British and Force Z was sent, because I was looking at the initial stuff, because they were sent to kind of like wander around, protect the, Mal the Malaya area, where, of course, they came into contact with yeah. the Japanese, but they were looking for a fight. They, yeah. they were oh, looking. Yeah. This, this was a fleet looking for a fight that thought it could win. The Japanese, well, let's just put it short, yeah. the Japanese Air Forces found the, found the fleet in little time, uh, in a span of a couple hours took out both the Repulse and the, the battleship Prince of Wales. Which Finally, RAF fighters legendary in the area. Legendary battleships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, remember, these are the biggest battleships in the world. Not, well, not the biggest, but these are the pride of the British fleet, yeah. which for decades were the best battleships in the world. Because the Prince of Wales we knocked had, out the Bismarck, right? At this, uh, the Prince of Wales was there in the the, the hood. The hood got taken down. The Bis yeah, yeah. The, the Prince of Wales was one of the escort vessels mm -hmm. for the hood. Yeah. And whereas the hood was like the dominant vessel in the world for, for 30 years. Uh, so you got these air power, they come in, they take out the, the signature vessels in the fleet. It's a utter embarrassment. Yeah. I, I will. Utter I, embarrassment. But the British and the Americans both learned a lesson that day. And the irony is the Japanese did not. The well, British and American both learned how effective air power is and that is against the future against big battleships and, and well, fleets and they took that to heart learned the lesson air power is what's going to win the naval war i can summarize and speak the about japanese still yeah. still at the end of the day still believed in the mahan doctrine that yes the the end game battle of the pacific war was going to be decided by battleships in a decisive battle yeah. all out and well, they still, yeah. here, I can actually speak about this because I had a random paper I had to write for a teacher we both had, uh, Penny. Uh, he specialized in yeah. yeah, University uh, of Concordia. He specialized in Pacific War and Japanese history. And I wrote a paper about the doctrine between the big guns and the aircraft carriers because there was thinkers in America and Japan who... Yeah. The way that they, the way to describe it is like conservative traditionalists yes. in the Navy really thought of just big gun doctrine from World War One. Battleships but are going to be. The it most was important. also their army counterpart. Uh, yeah. Army counterparts when they were thinking about Navy, they were telling the Navy, "Oh well, you need big more battleships, big guns. armor. You need big guns. That's what's going to win because it survives the longest and it's going to carry it, the day." But end of the day, Toho is the one who decides things in Japan. Yeah. And but the people who were basically you call them like the the for, with the foresight. Um, Yamamoto, he's one of the few people that is advocating for carriers and like saying they are probably the most, 
useful thing in your you know in your uh, in your military your they're going to be able to sneak attack you're going to be able to hit targets before they can retaliate so the most important thing is to take out the enemy aircraft carrier because you do not want them to retaliate but people like and i it always comes well, down to nagumo but choichi nagumo was an old guy and he thought yeah big guns battleships basically. an aircraft carrier is the same thing as um let's imagine a boxer yeah this, this is what an aircraft carrier they they throw knockout punches and they hardly ever miss if their punch hits they knock out the other boxer you've killed a ship for sure yeah. yes their target's done aircraft carriers are glass targets though that if they get hit they're they're out well american well, aircraft carriers didn't have glass jaws but japanese aircraft carriers had terrible anti-air uh, anti-air guns on them so they did have glass jaws because if you went to attack a japanese aircraft carrier Basically, they relied on their zero fighters. If their zero well, fighters didn't get that you, is, yeah. that is proper doctrine. Because uh, even for the American carriers, well, yeah, like, of course. And, and, and any naval vessel, no matter how many AA guns you put on it, the most effective defense that you have is your fighter your fighters, escort. Of course. They, and, like the Yamato, after all this refitting, in 1944, this is the, the biggest battleship in the war, and half of its armaments were taken out and replaced with like advanced AA uh emplacements and how many air do you even i don't even know how many airplanes did it take down because it was legendary it, it absolutely legendary it was like uh an american force of 1200 uh 1200 planes it's like overkill to the max yeah. like 1200 planes in four waves sent to take on the yamato and this is like a last ditch effort from the the japanese navy they they still have this yamato the rest of their fleet is basically scuttled uh, yeah. They only have enough fuel. Uh, where where was uh where were they it didn't heading make it. at yeah, the? They had to beach themselves. It was heading to um oh god I know I'm the Pacific War Channel guy I don't even remember. <laughs> you know what the problem is? You read so much that you yeah. get caught up. I am stuck reading about I, that, that thirty-seven. That wasn't stuff that 30. we were thinking about at the I, time. And, just... and I'm not a military history guy. I'm like a general history guy, but I'm so stuck in 1937 to 1939 China Japan War right now that I can't think of like anything else. And, uh, well, long story short, the yeah. Yamato is, is sent on a relief mission uh, as the Americans are invading, um, uh, was it Iwo Jima? I think God, it, there's a, there's this is why we have computers yeah. in front of us. I, I have a feeling it was Iwo Jima, and so they sent the Yamato and a couple of uh, cruisers and destroyers as an escort, but they never thought it was going to make it back. This was the last ditch effort, used the last of the remaining fuel that they have. Uh, reserved for the Japanese Navy, and they basically beached the Yamato, and this thing is brittled with guns, and it became a fixed defensive position. Yeah, Okinawa. It was going to Okinawa. Nah, that's a, uh, well, I mean, that makes sense. That was the last most horrific... Oh, my God, it's one of the worst battles uh, out of the Pacific War. Out of uh, 1,200 uh, planes sent to take it out, like, they... Did take out a couple hundred American uh, pilots. Well, I mean, it's uh, literally that's, it's just an island with guns. Amount. Yeah, yeah like... it was a ridiculous island of guns. They put AAs every single spot. Oh, I remember his ori the original thing we were supposed to be talking about was uh, the invasion of all the places here. I I'll just kind of like because maybe a lot of the audience members don't know. So Pearl Harbor was you know kind of 
the the, the fuse to ignite what was a happening bomb at that, that time because yeah. yeah they did have a grand overall strategy they weren't just hitting pearl harbor no, they, had they were hitting all the allied forces in western uh, in the western pacific yeah. so one of the main ones uh that they didn't want to actually attack we're giving a nut to my bird, which is going to sound weird to the podcast people. I have a parrot with me, if you haven't guessed, hey. with the little chirps you hear. Anyways, uh, the hey. Japanese wanted to go through Thailand. She's gonna, either going to have cashews or she's going to have issues. issues. Oh, God, no, we're gonna, we can't do that. We'll, we'll see one day if we get popular enough to get away with insider stuff. We'll see mm. later. That's going to sound weird to people. So, anyway, the Japan wanted to go through Thailand, and they asked Thailand to uh, let our military go through because they had to attack targets like Hong Kong, Malaya, and other places. But they gave the Thai government, in the end, two hours to respond before they were going to attack, and the Thai government was actually kind of juggling between trying to have a military alliance with Britain and looking at the benefits of just basically giving it to Japan, and they didn't send a response. So, they were attacked. Uh, they pretty much... Not to say they didn't put up a re they they put up a resistance yeah yes they did but there was a resistance throughout the area but they ended up not only allowing Japan to go through they secretly allied to Japan and arguably are like one of the few nations that was in an alliance with the Japanese Empire they kind of were their own thing and they did give troops to the Japanese to fight in other uh, places which is kind of interesting uh, but it allowed for other places to simultaneously be attacked like Malaya and Burma. And honestly, you can look at it, it's I almost... I not forget about the Philippines. Well, we're gonna, Philippines I'm going to keep for the you last get, one because it's the biggest. Yeah. But December 8th, depending on time zone and the well, hours... December 7th, the Japanese started sending out their land-based aircraft. Yes. Throughout the area. And they hit majority of the Allied air power as Airfields they're still everywhere. on the ground. So they shot up majority of the planes their support facilities, and the airfields themselves, rendering them useless. Yep. In three days, they effectively knocked out the entire Allied air power in the region. And uh, like he said, which, which, is no, which is no small feat. No, all the airfields in Malaya, even Singapore. The people think of Singapore, it uh, went down in 42, but actually the initial just bombing of it was even on December the 8th, they started to do it. They didn't invade yet. Uh, on December 10th, uh, over 60 bombers uh, crossed the China Sea, and they hit America's own, uh, only remaining major air force, like air base, sea base, west of Pearl Harbor in uh, Manila, Manila Bay in the uh, Philippines, and yeah. rendered it out of, <laughs> out, of uh, the, uh, the, out of commission, Almost immediately. Caught all the American planes on the ground, destroyed the fuel uh, reserves. Brand new bombers that were specifically brought over for the defense. And, I, you know, people, it's like, you love him or hate him, Douglas MacArthur, but this is... I'm on... I've read a lot about Douglas MacArthur being a character he, and a bit of a crazy person, but... He was... Uh, oh, dare I say, he was eccentric. very... <laughs> eccentric. But he was also arrogant, and he is like the others... Where he underestimated the Japanese. They got... Like, the Philippines got their... The, the, like, it's unbelievable how this sneak attack just just destroyed what could have been at least some kind of an air oh, resistance. The, they had so many lines of defense planned out. Yeah. So, like, in the event of a Japanese invasion coming from this side, they had all their lines of defense. You hit... The, you fall back, you fall back, you fall back. Which they did. But yeah. morale amongst the American troops was... At an all-time low, and all of a sudden you have these seemingly invincible Japanese soldiers galvanized to 
Well, they gave them hell. The Filipinos, particularly, the Filipinos were like unbelievable. The stories you hear about it, them it, hunting these—it's not now. as embarrassing as, uh, uh, say, the the fall of Malaya. Uh, oh boy, yeah, the, that the, one. The, the British. Uh, well, I think Singapore is the. Here, okay, so Malaya, yes, and Malaya is really, it's hard to, because so many islands, right? It's Singapore, sorry, that, uh, that's what I was thinking. Here, I'll get to Singapore, but I like the Malayan campaign particularly because of, you know, the Tiger Malaysia, Yumashita mm. was a famous uh, IGM uh, officer, general, eventually, and uh, he actually, he, it's funny, he's one of the few uh, guys that ended up on the war crimes trial that um, lawyers tried to defend him to get him off the death sentence, and there was evidence that he might Nah, he, he did he did atrocities, but I mean, you're comparing apples to oranges, but compared to the other guys in the Japanese, he did less atrocities, which is just messed up to say. But anyways, yeah. I won't go into it. That, that's a whole yeah, yeah. big but, subject. It's yeah. a it's a big touchy subject that hey, you know, requires I, time to I, discuss. I, had, yeah. I, did, I did a whole Battle of Hong Kong, Eric, and I took a good 20 minutes to try to explain why atrocities happen so much under the Japanese military structure. So if you want to watch that, you can go watch that, and it's awkward to... It's almost like you're being an apologist, and they're the worst. The Japanese, during this time, were the worst for this. And it's barbaric, it's terrible what they did. But there is kind of a reason for it, and you can go watch that. But for Singapore, Singapore is actually known as, and I had to hear Churchill, I wanted this little quote, the worst disaster in British history. I don't know if you know the story about the surrender yeah. of Singapore, but it's funny. Um... They outnumbered the Japanese invaders two to one, if I'm correct. And, they, and, at, yeah. and just like in the Philippines, they had lines of defenses set up. And Percival was the commanding British guy, and he was brought over. Here, I'll tell the story as I heard it on Dan Carlin, because I thought Dan Carlin narrated this hilariously. The Japanese ran out of all ammunition. Even their anti-aircraft weapons had almost no ammo. They didn't have water. Their refinery plant was damaged by the British. The British, I don't think, knew this. So they ran out of they water. They absolutely did not. No rations. They were out of food. They had no petrol. They, In some cases, like they thought uh, the Japanese were four times the number that they yeah. actually were. That they were the ones that were outnumbered yeah. two to one. When, in fact, it was the opposite. And oh they, the British were set up. They they had a, a very strong defensive position, yeah. a very strong defensive position. <laughs> but the Japanese yeah. had to cross um, uh, a lot of water to get to them in this in their city, uh, a bastion. But and, per Percival was talking to the lesser officers under him, and they had to come up with a strategy. And some people were saying we need to fight this out and actually counterattack the Japanese because they didn't want to give up. Singapore was like kind of like a last bastion in, in Asia for Britain. And, you know, Percival and other officers said, we're done, because they had their own problems. They were morale, running low. Morale was at an yeah. all-time low. Like, how we've been a dominant power in the world for hundreds of years. How are we being pushed back? It was it, almost inconceivable. They were cut off from trade routes. I mean, there was, no, there was actually not a lot of hope. Yeah. yeah. And it made sense. But anyways, Percival decides to surrender. But this is what's so funny. Yamashita, <laughs> Yamashita, again him, the Malaysian tiger, he has him come over, Yamashita has this all planned out, he has his men with guns, there's no ammunition in them because they have none, he has them all positioned, he has them cleaned up so they look good, they're all starving to death, mm -hmm. he has a bunch of jeeps like basically pushed, all the machineries pushed there even though they couldn't move it because they had no petrol, to make it look like they were bigger than they were because he thought the British were going to attack them, he didn't think they were going to mm -hmm. surrender. But he gets a message from Percival saying they're willing to negotiate. So he's like, oh my god, 
I can't believe we how can, do you how do you how keep, we pull this off? How do you keep a straight face, Jerry? This, that, this is so that funny. Gets... So he invites Percival into like I guess the army tent. I think it was a tent or a building. He has his feet on the table. He's intentionally trying to act like an arrogant asshole while he's sweating. I've, al I've already won this battle. Yeah. He has like one fourth the size. I'm here to yeah. hear your terms of surrender. <laughs> and he. All of his officers are s sweating bullets because they know what's going on, and he is acting like a cool cat, you know, pun intended, trying to pretend like they have the upper advantage. And then he says to Percival, you know, you're going to come here, you're going to relinquish your weapons, you're going to relinquish all of your gear and that, because the Japanese need it, mind you, because they're not going to get reinforce any reinforcements or supplies for like a month. So they are actually screwed. And Percival surrenders. It's, uh, I think there's footage of it. If not, there's photos. And, yeah, he bluffed him, like, a poker game. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and true, yeah. straight face during that, and brilliant. Uh, that's why Yamashita gets a lot of credit in this war, even though he didn't, you know, he's responsible for, like, every commander in Japan was responsible for terrible, terrible stuff, mind you, but, uh, he's one of the less hated ones, that's the only way I can describe him. And Singapore fell, actually, in 42, so it took a while to, uh, actually take but it. But can you deny that he's an effective battlefield commander? That's he was crazy. That's he he was one of the crazy Japanese guys. Where that's they a seemingly told him. impossible f uh, a feat. You know, yeah. you're outnumbered two to one on the attack, and usually uh, when it comes to warfare, like if you're attacking, you need to have superior numbers, especially attacking somebody who's in an entrenched position. Yeah, and uh, Yamashita is one of those kind of the only way to describe some of those commanders where they would be put on islands, and you would have to go around dense jungle right to attack an enemy position but the japanese like night attacks and they like to sneak yes, behind the enemy get close which was contrary to popular belief at the time they thought that the japanese couldn't were see well at night couldn't <laughs> see well at night they yeah. were afraid of the dark yeah yeah the the rationale was i guess because they have once again agents. you know arrogant ignorant western racist, powers dumbass. like yes but absolutely this, racist. and it has to be said i said it in the battle of hong kong video this is racist stupidity but the actual military commanders believed and planned for this they thought the japanese were prone to seasickness and that they couldn't see well at night so that night attacks would never occur and guess what the japanese did naval and naval combat and in military uh ground force combat night attacks absolutely used night attacks <laughs> yeah. and they were extensively training their pilots in night missions at Terrifying. night training like they, they were that. in they were in their element in the dark can you imagine you were on a cruiser and also torpedo boats. it was ungentlemanly to attack at, at night. night yes like no one did that but can you imagine like you're at night you're on a torpedo boat or a cruiser and then you just things start to like shoot two clicks away from you fog lights go out like it must have been terrible well then the, uh, your starburst shells going off and yeah, it would have been so scary like i Oh my god, at least no at least if you could see your enemy, it's like you know what to expect and death is coming, but for that it's like any moment you well, could be hit with something. There's a major battle that comes up very soon in uh, yeah. 1942. I don't want to uh, talk about it just yet because that is a uh, a hot one. It's a hot and one. Americans yes, it's, love it's, it. it's a very it's a it's a very big one and this is where the Japanese take on the remnants of all the British, the the Dutch and the American naval forces in the area that get uh, they fall together. They fall back together. They put themselves under command of a Dutch admiral, and this is the the remaining naval defense that yeah. they have in the area because everything else has been knocked out. Their air power is knocked out everywhere, and all they have left is this naval force. And the Japanese use night for it, but this is 
that's a topic for another day. A B D A. I just that's, saw that's it. That's the one. Because uh, again, we keep going around and around. But uh, another place that's attacked, of course, is the Dutch East Indies. Which uh, I guess Americans might find this odd that like the Netherlands had a bunch of colonies that still existed yeah, the, to World War Two. The Dutch. Well, I mean, the, uh, the great traders of the world. <laughs> some of the biggest corporations in human history. The Dutch East uh, India Company. Yeah. It's and the oil in the South Pacific. Well, there was, was the you had French colonies, you had Dutch colonies, and let's remember, Portuguese too. The Germans Sorry. plowed through all of them already, and yeah. so what happens to their colonies? They lost their 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 home countries, but the colonies are still operating under their flags. Yeah, the Netherlands had a exiled government within London that took all of its resources at this point to push it to just protect its assets in the Pacific, which, duh, they have oil and the Japanese and need Japan oil. has not signed the um, the Axis Powers Pact yet, the, the Pact of Steel. They're to in talks with Germany, but they are not in an open alliance yet. Well, they've signed it by before the invasion. But these are, these, these are some tasty targets, you know, like they yes. know that the, the mother countries in Europe have been plowed over by by Germany, so who who's in control of these colonies? Yeah. Uh, and it is those powers. It was like, why can't we be in control? Well, they needed. A, well, this is the start of the start of an empire. And to give some context for the viewers, the... is it is it fair taking imperial possessions from another? Uh, as an empire, taking imperial possessions from another empire. Let's there. If you can the, get away with it, yeah. yeah. There's Which the Dutch know. Empire, there's the French Empire, there's the, the British Empire in the area. Well, what the French is a have? little weird because Vichy France was not happy about the French Indochino thing. Like, you know, the Germans had to actually shut up their puppet government in France about the whole Japanese thing coming in. But that was, anyway, that's a logistical nightmare. And there was actually a lot of talks between the governments, but they took it. But for the Dutch, the, the initial plan, the reason why the Japanese struck out and did everything they did was they had to seize oil from other countries in the United States because the United States was squeezing them. And yeah. the Dutch yeah, had the with most. the oil embargo, and yeah. well, they would receive 80% of their, their fuel. Uh, Amongst tin and iron and other things, of course. Like in Manchuria, there was a lot of resources that they needed. But the, the a large but, uh, part of the oil. The, the, the East Indies, like you have rubber, you have oil. Yes, this. rubber is a huge one. And le let's remember, what fuels Japanese expansion? It's the army. And so they're just looking for resources to maintain their army in China. And basically, I mean, to brutally summarize it, Japan attacked China and China became like a trap where they got stuck and they couldn't leave because they had to save face. And in order to continue their invasion of China, they needed resources. And then the United States cut them because the United States was giving them most of their oil. And when they got cut, they had basically two options, which was northern expansion or southern expansion the northern expansion would have gone to siberia to take the oil reserves there but the russians beat the living hell out of them so they mm -hmm. basically cut that idea the navy said dashi's indies malaya all these places over here borneo borneo's oil we could take all this valuable industry and consolidate it but there's no way to take this without attacking the united states and britain and that was the crux of it yeah because and yeah. also well the allied powers didn't want to see Japan take a a hand over them, become more dominant than them in the region. I, I ran out of beer, so I got to steal. <laughs> we didn't really plan much when we started this. We wrote some notes, but uh, certainly he's on his computer. I'm old school. I like to 
I like to write stuff well, down. I haven't actually used my notes. I, I, I have here, Guam was attacked at, uh, God, it was the 8th, I think the 8th, almost unanimously the 8th of December, almost everyone was attacked except for Wake yep. Island. Wake Island is December 10th. Yeah, yeah. Although they oh, but scouted that, uh, it. I, I, I do have to give credit uh, on this, the, the Valiant Defense of Wake Island, because yep. it lasts 20 days. And they, on Wake Island, they only had 12 planes on Wake Island to defend it. And these are older wildcats and, and that. And the Japanese, for two weeks, kept fucking sending in bombers and their uh, their escort zeros and whittled them down. And they, they bombed the living hell out of Wake Island. But they still held out. Yeah. And it was it was for three weeks until finally the Japanese did land their thousand uh, uh, troopers onto the the Wake Island Peninsula, but they lost seven hundred to nine hundred in that feat. They they did end up overrunning the American Marines, but the American Marines are outnumbered nearly twenty to one. And at this point, all their air power has been destroyed. Yeah, the airfields were taken out everywhere immediately. Uh, they did send Admiral Fletcher with a uh, a carrier force under um, the uh, the Lexington, or it was the Yorkton. I'm I'm pretty sure it was the Lexington to go and reinforce Wake Island. But as they're moving, they're also in the transition of changing their uh, Pacific Fleet commander. Yeah, they had to cancel. Yeah, because uh... Uh, well, uh, Kimmel was being blamed for everything for Pearl Harbor, so he was on his way out. And there was this gap of three weeks where Kimmel was still in charge of the Pacific Navy and then Nimitz was going to take it over. But they didn't want to risk too much before Nimitz came in because they wanted Nimitz to be able to start with, like, as much as they could offer. So there was an American uh, aircraft carrier task force going, like, en route as a relief force for Wake Island but was turned back uh, during that. Uh, well, basically, that's... They they abandoned Wake Island to the Japanese and uh, to, but the, uh, to their fate. But like but you said, the Japanese Valley, had to make a second invasion, actually, because they, oh, they, they, they didn't take it. The, in the Japanese first. thought they were going to take it on day one. Yeah, they, they little... did not expect a three-week uh, engagement. I mean, like, this it, was, was just, it was a thermopylae this was, battle. This but, was just a, yeah. a minor atoll in the Pacific. This is just a, a small little plot of land. Like, you can barely fit an aircraft uh, field on it. Like, a landing strip. It's There's not much, but they had... Oh, they oh. had guts. Yeah, for, for those who watch on the YouTube, as you can see, every subscriber... Um, Basically, is a peanut or a cashew for my bird, and uh, if you simply if you don't support my channel, she she will die. So please do so. And I said that with a straight face. I'm a chef. I know how to cook this bird. There's not much meat on her. I've I've looked at her up and down. She's like she kind of comes up across as a great chicken. She's can, an African gray for those who can't see her. But can be used as a garnish. Yeah, maybe. Like in the center of a platter. Mm, perhaps. Uh, the purpose of the bird was actually, <laughs> yeah, <that> was, uh... <laughs> the, I was hoping that she would say the intro to my videos, but she will not say anything but profanity in French. Uh, we live in a, a, a French, we live in Quebec. I, I don't know if I've ever said that on the podcast, but yeah, we're Quebec. What? 
Well, we're Anglos. No, I'm an Anglo-Quebecer. I do not identify as a Quebecois. I do not I do identify not, as it's, it's a human. A, well, it's, I'm not, a it's not a point of identifying. It's like I do have Quebecois in my in my blood. Like that, that's part of my family. But majority of my family is Anglo Canadian. Like we're not. It's so funny. We we, we gotta, I, I, I'm trying to say it without being insulting or yeah. or, or that. It's uh, love Quebecois and that. It's just I'm not that. No, I'm I'm glad that. Quebec was conquered. Nouvelle France was a failed experiment. We're all happy. <laughs> I, I don't know how many people from well, Quebec actually watch this. It'd be interesting. Most of the viewers are, are from the United States, but surprisingly the Philippines. I have noticed a lot of Filipino oh. viewers, and I'm going to get to the history of the Philippines prior to World War II and the Sino-Japanese War. So you will get your fix, I swear to you, at some point. I also will... Acknowledge, uh, I need to do a video just on Korea before um, the Second Sino-Japanese War and probably... Oh, I thought you were going to say like the Korean War, like let's... <laughs> I, I'm so glad they did not let MacArthur have his way. Oh and, uh, God, uh, this, The guy who in charge of the Philippines and that, and he was given overall commander, like supreme allied commander of the Korean War. And his way of dealing with the war at the time like he's like okay uh, as the chinese were sending in uh reinforcements to the the koreans he's like okay well there's a lot of them um we have a weapon let's just use it oh this is such a controversial thankfully, subject thankfully that did not happen i you know and and people who've read more recent literature there's actually a lot of defense of that idea that to use to use the nuclear weapons in first strike capability to do extremely large amounts of damage and killing a lot of people, but it will offset a war that'll go for a no, few years. It escalates it into a different kind of war. It will war, war ends war it war as war soon ends as it. you start with a nuclear weapon. But it could war, save the lives war, potentially. You no, know, I think it, the war at that point it evolves. But LeMay, you know, evolves. You know the fire. It's you know it's the argument with the firebomb campaign of Tokyo. Like the firebombs killed. So many the civilians. Bomb. The firebombs killed more people than both nuclear weapons yeah. combined. Like, that's just, kind of the argument. Just like the firebombing of uh, uh, Tokyo killed more people than both like nuclear bombs. Like or something in and, one and day. Probably one. in a more gruesome way. But I mean, I can't, I can't say that because it wasn't there. But those firebombings were absolutely God, deadly. Bro. People going into sewers to try to find refuge and then all of a sudden... All the heat from above gets yeah. like uh, Cook them funneled inside. into the sewers so and, in an and into their uh, their their bomb shelters. Everything was just like just like the you know how like uh, escaping oxygen and like it just brought it in, brought the heat down in. So all of a sudden, like you're safe, and then two thousand degrees heat instantaneously. Because uh, there there were cases in some of these uh, uh, cities, like well, like in Dresden. Uh, they yes, went. Yeah. They went into some of the bomb shelters after, yeah. and I, 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 that's they, bad. Yeah, this is a scary thought that the the people inside these bomb shelters had been liquefied, and they were told to literally go there. melted into a a puddle of human sludge, like just yeah. melted away. You know, and it's. But that, it's one of the things that I actually saw. I remember I was watching a little documentary. It, it really changed Churchill. Like he, 
he questioned the airstrikes and because well, you know there was a debate about should they be booked. Post World War Two, there's only one faction of the British military that is not honored, and it is British Bomber Command. Even though, as soon as the war ended, they disassociated the themselves. Sheep, yeah, they black more but, than black sheep. They disassociated. They made British Bomber Command do these things, and then they disassociated themselves, which I, I, I find is a tragedy, and it's an insult. And you have to remember, yeah, sure, they did heinous acts, but they also risked their lives. Like, the, the, a lot the of casualty early rate, war, yeah, it was The casualty rate for the Bomber Command compared to yeah. uh, the Strategic Fighter Command of the, the Spitfires and whatnot, they, they were facing casualties of, like, 8 out of 10 were... Being shot down on a single raid, it's 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 funny because at the beginning, you know, the casualty rate was so high, but by the end of the war, they were day bombing freely because you know the Germans had no capability of stopping them. They at that point. they had lost all the and when the super fortresses the came into like the Pacific and, War, like the and, super fortresses and could do whatever. Super you want. fortresses, then with P fifty one Mustangs that could leave at the same spot where the bombers oh, leave, yeah. long range escort missions. All of a sudden, like. The bombers are freed up. They don't have to worry about any interceptor fighters coming in to, to deal with them. And so they just load them up with as many munitions as possible. Yeah. You know, let's just end this. I'm just going to end it off. We were originally talking about all the places that were attacked by Japan. Gilbert Islands, Borneo, which you could add as the Dutch East Indies in almost a way. Because it's half Dutch, half English kind of thing. Mm. And then to end off the Philippines, which... We'll get into a tangent because, you know, the, the fight for the Philippines is legendary. You know, all the way to when Douglas MacArthur got his fat ass on a plane. I will now. come back. I, I will come back with my corn pipe and I, I will fight. And then he hides in Australia and then everyone hates him because he's a prima donna Shakespearean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, uh, he wasn't thinking about winning the war. He was thinking about what he's going to do after the war. Good book. I think it's called Rampage. The story of Douglas MacArthur in the fight for Manila. It's Oh my god, it's so rough. Dude, would I put him up there as a I mean an idol when it comes to like battlefield commanders? No. Uh there there were many other commanders in the theater of war in that area who who actually deserve respect and I don't think what was the name of the guy that he left in the Philippines to run things? That poor guy was told to hold out as long as he could and then when he surrendered they like really oh, he, shafted he, him. He, what his name MacArthur was. left, but he left majority of the American forces yeah. there. And, and basically, when he left, he's like, "Well, okay, just hold out as long as you guys can. I will be back." It's but like, he couldn't. Well, he could. I I give it credit. He could not I, stay because of his name. Because if the Japanese did grab him, they were gonna like literally put him in front of a camera and like poke at him like a joke. Because he had become such a celebrity. But was he necessary in the war effort? Oh. I I I don't. FDR think so. hated they, him too. They they could have replaced him with just about anyone, but he was a political name at that point, and you cannot take the Philippines back without MacArthur. Even though at that point, like yeah. in in okay. my opinion, and this is my opinion, he he was uh, a failed uh, battlefield commander at that point. Yeah. He he had he was charged with the uh, the post of defending the Philippines. He failed at that. Uh, time for new blood. You know what? I I don't know how long these are going to. But go it on. would be inspirational if he returned. But yeah. were there others uh, out of West Point that could have done better? Absolutely. I don't know how long this is going to go on because we always target forty five minutes when it comes to these podcasts. But I had a discussion with this guy before the podcast. 
And I didn't know this story myself, and I want you to just explain to the audience, I find this so hilarious. Could you please talk about Churchill oh. and the White House? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, so 19, 1941, December. Uh, Churchill's been trying to get the states into the war, you know, like clandestinely or that. And, like, I, I hate to say it, but after Pearl Harbor was bombed, Churchill could not be happier because, <laughs> yeah. like, to, that was the, uh, you know, the tunnel, like, the light at the end of the tunnel that, okay, America's in the war now. We're going to win we, this. We're going to win it. And it wasn't a, a, a question of if, it was a question of a what. Win. It was guaranteed. And so one of the first things that uh, Churchill did was, and it was uh, December... You wrote December. notes on the drinking behavior of Churchill. Absolutely. <laughs> December 22nd, Churchill arrives in Virginia. And he he was supposed to stop there. And then uh, I forget the name of the warship that had escorted him there that he was on board. But they were supposed to stop there, refuel, re-maintenance, and then move up into uh, Chesapeake Bay in Baltimore. And then they would uh, uh, drive into uh, D.C., Churchill was not waiting for anything. He got off the ship, he got on a plane, he flew into the White House, and, well, it, it was a very pivotal time. This is, the Allies have to get together, they have to discuss the war strategy, because there's many countries together fighting on a, a common front, but who's going to be in charge, and who's going who's gonna to be in charge here, who's going to be in charge there, how do we allocate resources, what's our priority, Roosevelt committed to Europe first. That's uh, Which even, makes sense. For, even though yeah. the American public was against that. They wanted Japan first because they were hit by Japan, but Germany in their... The, if they had not declared war on, uh, on America right away, it would have been a completely different war. You know, I've looked you, at so you, many things about it, and I, to this day, it still confuses me as to why Hitler... Unanimously declared war on the United but, States, but yeah. that's a different topic. But yeah. okay, so Churchill, he he arrives at the White House and decides to stay for several weeks. Uh, Churchill has his habits. He wakes up to a cigar and he has a various, uh, like list of liquors that he likes to drink throughout the day and it's all by by time like but what is common is there's a lot of liquor <laughs> yeah uh churchill was known to drink a lot but he never acted inebriated he never appeared drunk at all even though this guy was drinking from like sun up to sundown the, the, the moment he woke up he has to have his drink ready there. And he, he put White House staff on call at all times of day because he needs his, his drinks refurbished, uh, like refilled. <laughs> and um, he had a, a series of late night like engagements with Roosevelt where they would stay up till like three, four in the morning just drinking and smoking cigars. And Churchill loved his Cuban cigars. Not illegal yet, but so hey, United States of Cuba just, got just, had good relations before all that stuff happened. Yeah, so Churchill liked to stay up because that's he he found that his he was most productive 
in those twilight hours. <laughs> the, the, the midnight hours. And he would often walk into Roosevelt's bedchamber as he's sleeping with his wife, uh, Eleanor. And, and, and Churchill would always walk in nearly nude. <laughs> At one point he was nude. <laughs> there were several occasions he was nude. But he, he saw no like problem with it. Because like, once his mind starts going... It's more important that what he's thinking about has to be uh, discussed. And immediately, so he would often go into uh, Roosevelt's bedchambers, wake him up, drag Roosevelt out, two in the morning, and Roosevelt would return to bed for the morning, smelling of cigars and scotch. And so eventually, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, President Roosevelt's doctor, they, they came up with uh, a saying for for Churchill, Churchill was public enemy number one. Because <laughs> Churchill got what he wanted, the strongest ally, and uh, it actually did turn into a very very close uh, friendship and relationship between Roosevelt and Churchill, where they were very simpatico. They had a way of uh, being able to discuss their ideas off of each other, and. Uh, well, you couldn't ask for, uh, like, two more important allies, like, being able to digress future uh, war plans, and majority of those war plans, and, and that would go into 44, 45, it was decided in those long, late nights between Churchill and, and Churchill was there for Christmas at the White House, because uh, he, he basically became part of a family yeah. and just a, a one last fun note was uh president roosevelt he had a a hobby when he was having family time and everyone around was he would make the drinks and he he loved to to mix drinks and but you couldn't ask what drink it was whatever president roosevelt felt like making and he liked to to make like tom collins or old fashions it's like here here's my Here's my creation. So Tell Tom me Collins what you think. Exist back then, I don't think. Sure, of course they did. All right, whatever. Uh, now, Churchill, nuts, Churchill was a very specific drinker. He drank his brand. He drank his his whiskeys, his brandies, uh, so, but he could not be rude and say no to Roosevelt's uh, mixology. So <laughs> Churchill would always take the drink, make an excuse, go to the washroom, pour it out, <laughs> come back, and say it was delicious. <laughs> Oh god, it's just it's it's so unbelievable. You know it's true. By the way, just for the audience, um, the relationship that FDR had with with Churchill or even Stalin was problematic because these private conversations they never saw the light of day for other people. So when, for example, when when FDR made some private secret agreements with Stalin, it was only known between the both of them. When Truman came into power yeah. unexpectedly, he didn't know, he had no information on a lot of these agreements. Did not have that relationship, did not know what Churchill's thoughts were on the matter. Because uh, yeah. between Stalin, Churchill, and uh, FDR, they had planned out the, the roadmap yeah. for, for post-war world, basically. And... Uh, well, Truman came in, and Truman had his own ideas, even well, as... was a bully. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he, he attacked Stalin immediately. He was extremely super aggressive. I mean, anyone who's seen a Netflix documentary knows yeah, the yeah, legendary yeah. conversations between, like, Truman and Stalin, between the interpreter, and Stalin's, like, taken aback, like, why is he... 
attacking me all of a sudden. You know, he was a staunch... Everyone was a staunch anti-communist, of course, it's, but Truman... It's, it's went, not basically. much of an argument that uh, had FDR survived to the end of the war. It might have been better. Uh, post-war yeah. Earth, as we know it, would have been completely different. And, and Truman had his own... But, you know, I'm already hearing in my head someone who would be, like, a staunch critic, of, of which you should be. You should be a staunch critic of FDR. He had his faults, too. Someone like Ben Shapiro would be like, well, you know what? Actually, if FDR was still in power, and he, would, he would have actually ruined things because America would have lost even more parts of Berlin, and Berlin would have just been, you know, it would be like something like that. Like, people who are going to, not, not to go into whole fringe and pundit group stuff, but uh, there will be people who will, like, you know, talk about the wrongs and rights of certain people. Well, I don't actually, I actually like Ben Shapiro. I think he has pretty good takes on things, we'll say there, but... I really enjoyed his review of the Schneider Cut. It was good. Like, yeah. it, it, was, it was to the point. No bias at all. Yeah. It's just the facts. Like, this is why the Josh Whedon version was terrible. This is why the Schneider Cut is great. And uh, let me just say, yeah, Schneider Cut, worth it. Um... If you don't want to sit down for the four hours to watch the film, Watching it is takes. divided into sections, almost like chapters. Yeah. And they're about 45 minutes each. Watch one and come back later. Okay, let's say that we got like, I'm sure we're over like whatever Thomas said, but let's give it 10 minutes. We're going to end this with predictions for Godzilla vs. Kong. It's been on my mind this entire the, the entire podcast. I want to talk about this. I mean... We both, co- I, I think we both think the same thing. That's the third party member that's going to come into it. That's going to be like. Well, it, it has to be because. Uh, I'm just going to compare King Kong and Godzilla, very fast, and, and what they're capable. Oh, of. you're going to get people um, hating you. Okay, uh, King Kong, in the movie Kong, Skull Island, you see him getting cut up, being hurt by the American Hueys flying around, hitting him with just simple M60s. That's uh uh, a 50 millimeter, um, uh, well, 50 caliber, sorry. That, yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. like, oh, geez, uh, don't I get, don't, drink, but I'm don't, like, pretty sure don't get cut there. Uh, but okay, he's getting, he's getting hurt by simple machine guns. Uh, at one point his hands are all cut up. But Samuel Jackson now, stared at him and it's scary. <laughs> I'm not saying King Kong's not tough, but now I'm going to use Godzilla's first film. And this is. This is not Toho Godzilla or, you know, like, the, the entire history. It's just this film franchise. Very important. So, I, I still think it's okay. It's not, it's not oh, it, far it, off, It's amazing. Though. I, I love it. We're both uh, avid Godzilla fans, by yes. the way. So, viewers, sorry for our nerdness. So, first, first Godzilla film, 2014. When uh, they, they shoot up um, their, their flares up and you just like it's this whole back still of just red light and Godzilla's walking and then all of a sudden it's just a bunch of uh, army tanks and sh- uh, troopers that just start shooting at him. He doesn't even notice. He just keeps walking through. He doesn't even uh, uh, fight back because he is not harmed by it. So the, the, that right there for me is, okay, Godzilla almost impervious to, to damage. Well, that kind of damage, where King Kong is getting cut up by simple rocks and stuff, like while he's climbing uh, the cliffs, uh, yeah. machine guns are hurting him. So now you want to take these two to fight each other? The rules have to be changed. And that's what I'm afraid about in this movie, is where they change the rules. Now, one way, and you made that uh, observation uh, yesterday, was in the last film, Godzilla goes Shin Godzilla, radiation overload. 
did he expel so much energy that he actually does shrink and become weaker? He seems as smaller. A, yeah. Yeah. Because in in this new film, in the trailer, we see Godzilla climbing up on an aircraft carrier. Where in the previous ones, he's bigger than the carrier. It's awesome. It's an awesome scene. I love it. But Mike, it is kind of like what? <laughs> so either it's a slimmed down Godzilla that yeah he expended a lot of energy so he shrunk or it's a baby guts I'd, I'd say because there's theories that it's mogi the the baby, baby godzilla, godzilla jr it could be mogi i think that's his name sorry i'll call myself a godzilla nerd i might be screwing that up or it is just mecha godzilla with the skin on him and he's smaller or like i think godzilla shrank a little bit from the radiation explosion because he went like supernova and he like kind of blew up there like in uh, when he fights death destroyer or when he fights space godzilla destroy uh when which because uh, like he godzilla goes like super he, he oh, meltdown uh, when, when he goes uh first shin godzilla from toho films yeah. um that, no, but e even what yeah that's against destroy a guy he goes uh, yeah. destroy a guy is the ultimate enemy like king Ghidorah is his arch rival but destroy is the most devastating it's the coolest fight, movie uh enemy he ever fought it's, yeah, it's one of the best it's such oh, a good godzilla film this is like and, and just like classic uh, dragon ball z or that like this isn't even my final form yeah like every time like he it's this close fight with destroyga and like he narrowly beats him it's like destroyga like well this isn't even my final form destroyga i mean it's probably like supposed to be destroyer but the translation of the box mm. i mean angry video game nerd said it best it's, it, it sounds like that's Destroya, so it's just so funny to say destroyga but uh I'm okay, so who's the alpha titan in this Godzilla. new film franchise? It's Godzilla. There's no argument. I don't care what anyone says. Uh, King Kong, oh, but he's got like a, an axe, a hatchet that he probably made out of one of Godzilla's scales or something like one of his fins. Uh, Someone's going to hate so much on this later. I, like, I'm not... Whoa. King Kong won the battle sorry, in the movies. So I am not apologetic when it comes to Godzilla versus King Kong. Uh, Kong is a... He's a punk. <laughs> and Godzilla is the king of all monsters. There's no argument about it. He's the king of all monsters. He is the Alpha Titan. He just fought King Ghidorah. And in an epic battle, yes, he did go radiation Godzilla to beat him. But even, like, if you look at Godzilla in his fights with King Ghidorah before he goes radiation, when, like, Godzilla was in the water and he ambushes King Ghidorah, bites off one of his head, like, he proves that he's, well, dominant in, uh, in the sea. Even when he was fighting in Antarctica, he held his own. King Ghidorah ran off. Uh, what What's King Kong going to do? Is, is he going to, like, Godzilla just drag him into the water? I know there is that scene. There is that scene in the trailer where they're fighting in the water, and it looks like Kong is actually beating Godzilla in the water. I'm, I'm sorry, but monkeys are not known to be... Good in water. Good in water, and, like, that's their... Uh, that's their environment. That's where they fight best. Where it's been proved that Godzilla, he's a water-based yeah. alpha titan. It's so you heard it here, folks. Uh, King Kong is a punk, and he's gonna get. He is. He's gonna get banana slammed. But they're painting him like Kong is the good guy. That he's human, humanity's well, it's defender, an humanity's audience, uh, you know, like American... hero. It's. Americans are gonna. Well, I mean, well, I, they're on the fence. Godzilla is Godzilla is Japanese. King Kong's American. And I mean, we're not Americans, so we I, we get to say this, but uh, I think Americans still support Godzilla in this because it's like it's Godzilla clearly. They're really painting it like Kong's the good guy in the trailers. 
But we all know, and I mean... But I, absolutely excited to see the film. This is, oh, yeah. I'm hoping the this is the most hyped I've been to uh, see a movie in a while. Because Godzilla, he's the good guy. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, I'm sure you guys saw the trailers, and the rumors have always been there. It's Mechagodzilla is confirmed at this point, so obviously it's going to be, well, we're fighting, Mechagodzilla, Mecha Mazer cannons, and uh, it's gonna be uh, awesome. rockets and stuff. Well, that, and there's that other King Ghidorah head uh, floating around. Yeah, there's rumors what's it might gonna, be King Ghidorah's head on it. What's, yeah, the... For the head of the Mechagodzilla. I guess it's a Ghidorah head. I guess you, it's a Ghidorah head then. Just like, like reverse engineer his biometrics or like his genetic matter and then they get technology out of it. Who knows? It's, so uh, one to a hundred odds, I will place a bet that Jet Jaguar is going to come into this and he's going to save the day. I'll place a $10 bet on that. You heard it here first. Jet Jaguar is going to come. It wouldn't sell with American audiences, and this, this this film is based for it's legendary films. It's based for American audiences and such. Uh, uh, as for old school Godzilla fans and Toho fans in general, like the Toho is the the company that came up with uh, uh, Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, Anguirus, Gamera, which is the same time as everyone Godzilla. wants to see Godzilla versus Gamera. It'd be awesome. It would be tragic since they're both kind of like heroes of Earth, but, you know. Yeah. Oh, okay, so this has been going on a long time. If you like this content, which is not really, there's no script here. I don't know if you're watching from YouTube. You can kind of see that we're just mumbling about random stuff. If you really like this, please like and subscribe, comment. Comments really help with the algorithm on the YouTube. For those on Podbean or any other place where you find my podcast, thank you, because I have noticed the downloads. Um, it's getting quite popular as a podcast. And there's a lot of future developments coming, not just on my channel. I might be working with other people soon. Uh, I'd like to thank my friend Ian. And Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully this is going to be doing it again soon. Hopefully this is going to become maybe a weekly thing. Because as you can imagine, it's much easier to just have chats about a little bit of history. Maybe some dumb anime. We didn't talk about anime this one. Maybe movies or... A terrible day at work. <laughs> Maybe we're talking about that. Average day in the life of. Or... The history of us working together in kitchens, because we have a long history of working in restaurants together. We have a couple stories. Oh, God, yeah. We're not on this podcast, but we could, we could <laughs> tell some nasty stories. So about... Some not safe for work stories. Oh, my God. Yeah, I can think of some good ones. Yeah. But this has been the Pacific War Channel, but I guess we're calling this the historian pub podcast 